Well, good morning, Chillicothe Baptist Church. It's uh, good to be with you this morning in worship, and uh, as we prepare to preach God's Word, take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and as you turn your Bibles to Acts 4, I'll just say that it's been such a, a blessed weekend, so grateful for the uh, celebration of life service for Pat Rucker and to be here yesterday, and the, that celebration an opportunity of worship, and uh, also just want to say, as we've come in this weekend, we're so grateful once again for all of you, for all of your hospitality, your kindness, and your graciousness has been such a blessing to our family, and uh, and it, it truly is our joy to be here with you, and um, and this morning, as you take the, your Bibles and go to Acts 4, we're going to preach a message entitled, a needed prayer to our sovereign Lord. A needed prayer to our sovereign Lord. Please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Acts 4 and verse 23. The Bible says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time of gathering and thank you for the songs that have already lifted up your holy name. We thank you for the gospel that we not only proclaim, but we have sung about this morning. And we thank you for sending your son and for his great salvation, for the redemption of our souls and for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you for his resurrection and for the hope that we have, the hope that we celebrated even yesterday, and the hope that we celebrate every day, every moment of our lives, that Jesus lives, and that through him we have everlasting life. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand, and that he rules over all creation, and that he is head of the church. And thank you that one day he will come back in power and in glory to judge the living and the dead. And thank you for the promise of your word that we will dwell with him forever and ever. 
And so we now pray that your Holy Spirit will empower the preaching of your word, that you will open our hearts to receive your word, and that you will transform our lives to the work of the Spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I, I want to just ask one question to you that, uh, that kind of takes us in, to right to the text, and that is this, how do you respond to fear and pressure? Because that's exactly what you see going on here, is there is an element of fear in the apostles and in the church as they face pressure and opposition from the world in relationship to the preaching of the gospel. And I, and I ask this question because there is an increasing opposition in the larger secular culture to biblical truth and the message of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're in the college, if you're in college or you're in high school or you're in the professional world or wherever you might be or just simply out in the marketplace, we all see that there is a growing opposition to biblical truth and the message of the gospel. But I want to encourage you this morning that that opposition is not new. And, and, and while that opposition is real, it, it has always existed. It's always been present, and that's why the church throughout the, throughout the history of the world has constantly turned to God as a result of this opposition. And last week, we examined Paul's readiness to preach the gospel. And we learned last week that preaching was the central focus of the early church, and that was central to Paul's ministry. And here, as we enter into the book of Acts, just to visit, as we consider first things that we really want to entertain uh, in our ministry together, we, we got, come here to Acts chapter 4, and we get a, a picture of what's going on in the early church. And by the time you come to Acts chapter 4, what you will learn is that Peter, the apostle Peter, and the apostles have been preaching gospel sermons. In fact, Peter preached in Acts 2 the, on the day of Pentecost. And then in chapter 3, he preaches a gospel message. He's already proclaimed two gospel ser- sermons. But what I want you to realize, even as we celebrate the preaching of the gospel, both in Paul's readiness last week and here, Peter's ministry in the early church, I want to be careful that we don't romanticize this as though we are up for the task in our own strength. Hopefully you can follow me on that. I want us to be careful that we do not think for any minute, that I do not think for any moment, that that we are up for this task in our own strength. And so by way of introduction, I want you to consider in verse 23, the report that Peter and John give to the church that's gathered uh, in regards to the reaction to their preaching. Look at verse 23. The text says, when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they had preached the gospel right after the healing of a lame man that had been sitting at the gate. And they had healed him in the name of Jesus. They were taken into custody. And short story, they were basically told that they were not to preach in the name of Jesus. 
And so here in verse 23, Peter and John are released from custody. And what do they do after they're released from custody? They go to the church. They gather with the believers. And what they receive in that gathering is comfort and encouragement by being together. Listen, gospel company encourages gospel courage. We need to be reminded of that. Gospel company it will will encourage gospel courage. We need each other, brothers and sisters. We need what is going on here. We need the singing of the hymns. We need the teaching of the word. We need the fellowship that we share together. We need one another. And you see that right here with Peter and with John as they're, they, they, they come from outside, back inside, to be encouraged. And so then they give their report to the church, to the believers here in this home. And they basically give them two things. First, they tell them of the truth that they preached. So what is the truth that Peter and John had preached? Well, if you go back to verses 10 and you in through 12, listen to what it says. This is Peter and John standing before the council, the Sanhedrin council, and basically answering to them after they'd been taken in custody, into custody. Listen to what he says. Let it be known to all of you and to all the peoples of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, did you hear that? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now we may be sitting here today and we may say, well, what, why is there such opposition? Why did they face opposition? Why do we face opposition today to the message of the gospel? Well, I think it's because of the truth that they preached. Do you see what they preached there? You get a snapshot. They preached the severity of sin. They weren't afraid to call out the truth of the evil that had taken place. They're willing to stand before even the most religious people and say that you have sinned against God. And in their case, they had over, they had overseen the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so they were not afraid to preach the severity of sin. So we just need to realize that when we proclaim that we are all sinners before a holy God, and when we are willing to call what the Bible clearly states to be sin, there's going to be opposition. And then the other thing you see is, is that they preach the centrality of the cross. And there was resistance to that. By the name of this Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified and God raised from the dead, this lame man has been healed, Peter and John say. And so central to their preaching is the cross upon which Christ died and the resurrection from the dead. And so here's the reality. When we preach the cross, there's going to be opposition. But there's one other thing about the truth that they preach that I just want you to see here. And here is the truth. Here's what you see. They preach the exclusivity of Christ. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so, 
expect there to be oppositions when we preach that Jesus is the only way to heaven. When you remove the, the, the notion that, that, that there are not multiple options in terms of salvation, but that there is only one, you're going to face opposition. And so you just need to be prepared for that, and they were as well. But that's what led to the trouble that they faced. Notice the trouble that they faced. The religious leaders and legal authorities were not upset about the healing of the man. I want you to see that. Look at verse 14 of Acts 4. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. In other words, they didn't care that the man was healed. They didn't care about the good thing that had happened. What were they most upset by? Look at verse 18. It says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We must recognize that whether we're talking about the religious powers of the world or the secular powers of the world, they are all fine with good things. They're all fine with nice things. But they will not be fine with the truth of the gospel. I mean, that's what they had opposition against. Don't come here and preach in this name. Do not preach that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And so that's what, that is the trouble that they faced. And they commanded them not to teach. And see, that's why the church has to be constantly, constantly be reminded. The world is not going to respond to our calls for justice or our calls for mercy or any of that. What they're going to respond to, to in opposition is when we call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. And so as a result, they were commanded not to teach and they were threatened. So what was their response to this report? That's the question that I'm driving towards. How did they respond to the threat? Well, there isn't praise to Peter and John. That's not what you see when you get to verse 23. They don't, they don't praise Peter and John at all. They just listen to the report. They didn't rush to Twitter and social media to see who could make the boldest, most courageous post against the opposition. That's not what they did. Right? They, they didn't run to, to Walmart and purchase a new speaker system so they could be louder at their next service that they had out in the marketplace. They didn't meet in a green room to see what they needed to do differently so that they wouldn't have so many people upset. You know what they did? They prayed. That's what they did. There's no pride here. There's no self-reliance here. When they went and preached, were rested, were released, and gathered with the church, and they reported back, what did they do? They fell to their knees before a sovereign God, recognizing that with the opposition ahead and the task before them, they needed to pray a needed prayer to a sovereign Lord. And so the big idea from verse 23 all the way through 31 is simply this. The church must be committed to prayer to be empowered to share the gospel. I don't come here with some, some magic formula. I, I don't come here with some special gift. We don't come here together with, with, with some ability of our own to be able to accomplish what only God can accomplish. What we learn here 
is that we must be fully dependent on a sovereign God to accomplish His purpose through His Word. And so there are three things that you'll see here that show us that we need to be committed to prayer in order to be empowered to preach and share the gospel. First, we'll look at the prayer that they lifted. Then we'll consider the plea that they made. And then we'll see the power that they received. This is the prayer that we need, church. This is the prayer that we must devote ourselves to. So let us consider first the prayer that they lifted. And that begins in verse 24. So as they're gathered, the report is given, verse 24. And when they heard it, when all that had gathered there had heard the report of the truth they preached and the trouble they faced, they lifted a prayer. And when it comes to opposition, our general response is either to crumble or to compromise. We see that all over. We see that in the early church. We see that today. And there's a tendency when we face opposition to avoid sin, to soften the truth, to replace the gospel with something we think people want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And what, we, and what we've been commanded to preach. But here's what I want you to see about the early church. Instead of allowing their minds to be overrun with worry and fear, to be overtaken by the opposition of the religious and the secular, they turn to God Not their own strength, not their own wisdom, but they turn to who? What does the text say? The first thing they say in their prayer is sovereign Lord. I want you to underline that phrase. Sovereign Lord. They found strength in the sovereignty of God. What is the sovereignty of God? This is what the 1689 Baptist Confession says. God alone is the first of all doctrines. It says God alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he has most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatever he pleases. I mean, that is a summary of what Scripture teaches about God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is the first of all doctrines. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say God had a meeting with man. It doesn't say that God had a meeting with his creatures. It says that God acted. He acted alone. He acted decisively. He acted authoritatively. He acted sovereignly. It means that God is God. That's what sovereignty means. He is the Almighty and He is enthroned in heaven, presiding and ruling over all the affairs of men. That's what we just sang about this morning. The language echoes here the words of the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah. This is Hezekiah's prayer over Israel. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He is above all. He is the Almighty. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven, and He does as He pleases. Do we believe this? 
The word sovereign Lord ascribed to God, not just a prayer, but the prayer itself begins with a, with a praise of recognition, affirming that God is above all. And guess what? He's in control of everything. Now, wouldn't you think that that's what you would want to know when your life is on the line? When imprisonment is possibly the price that you have to pay for faithfulness to the truth? And so the prayer begins with sovereign Lord. I was looking through the Valley of Visions, the prayers of the Puritans. So I was just flipping through just to, just to recall how, how the Puritans would begin their prayers. Listen to how the Puritans began their prayers. And I want you to understand, this wasn't some kind of showy. These prayers were how the Puritans, they prayed in their public gatherings and how they prayed in their private prayer closet. And and listen how they, they began their prayers. O glorious God, O maker and upholder of all things, thou maker and sustainer of all things, O God most high, O God, most glorious, all-sufficient King. This is my favorite. Sovereign commander of the universe. I mean, isn't that good stuff? I I, I don't want us to get lost as if somehow this is some kind of showing. As I said, it's not. Uh, To begin your prayer with sovereign commander of the universe. That's how this prayer in this early church is lifted up. And I want you to notice how they frame God's sovereignty. Look how the prayer frames God's sovereignty. Okay, sovereign Lord, look what it says. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You'll read that throughout the Old Testament. And so he is sovereign over creation. He made Do you see how the prayer frames God's sovereignty? This is where prayer begins. He made. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things in the universe. We all see this. We see his sovereignty in the created order and realm. This perhaps is the most obvious display of God's sovereignty. But it is a comfort often used in Scripture. Even Jesus used this when he, t- when he told, he said in the Sermon on the Mount that the birds are provided food and the flowers are given beauty. By who? By a sovereign God. But he's not only sovereign over creation, he's sovereign through his revelation. Look at verse 20, look at verse 25. He says, who through? Notice again, God doing these things. It is God who made the heavens and the earth. It is God who said through the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so in the prayer, they quote Psalm 2. And this psalm it framed, it, we see that Scripture is framing the prayer because Psalm 2 has come to pass. All the rage, listen, all the rage, all the plotting, all the opposition that had mounted against David, what happened? Did King David rule? Did he reign? Yes, he did. Did God accomplish his purpose through David's reign? Yes, he was God's anointed. And as that psalm relates to Jesus Christ, the son of David, whose throne and kingdom will last forever, 
Did the opposition that stood against Jesus, did it stand? Did they win? No. And so this psalm is a reminder that, that all the evil that was plotted against God's anointed was part of the divine prophecy in Scripture. In other words, everything Scripture teaches, it will come to pass. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you will see repeatedly in the Gospels, and as it was written, or to full, and to fulfill the Scriptures, and then we see God's plan unfolding. And so, this statement he spoke is just a reminder to us that he is sovereign over creation, but he is sovereign through his word. All of scripture will come to pass. But, but now, what, what, what the prayer does next is show us that he's sovereign over history. Look at verse 28. Verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so he's sovereign over creation. He is sovereign through his revelation and his word. But here, what they do in their prayer is show us that he's sovereign over history, which means every detail of our life. He made, he spoke, he predestined. They had an understanding of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so do you and I. Here is the direct ab- application. In other words, this sovereign God who made everything, this sovereign God who not only made everything, who has revealed His will and His word, this sovereign God is using all things to accomplish His saving purposes in Christ. And so... God used all the evil committed against his holy servant, Jesus. Think about it. Look what the text says. He raised up Herod. He raised up Pilate. He used the Gentiles. He used the people of Israel to do, what does the text say? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he was crucified for our sins and buried in the grave. This wasn't plan B. This was God's eternal decree. In other words, God wasn't up in heaven twirling his hands, wondering what on earth is going on. No, everything was happening according to the decree of God. Not once did he twirl his hands. Not once did he scratch his head. Not once did he wonder what was going on because he was sovereign over it all unfolding his plan to rescue sinners like you and me. Now, with that in mind, here's what I want you to realize. He is so sovereign that he reigns over even the evil deeds of men. And he even reigns over the grossest wickedness of human history to accomplish his purposes of salvation for you and me. That's exactly what he says on the day of Pentecost. That you have taken by wicked hands and crucified the Lord of glory, but God has accomplished his predetermined plan through this event. Human beings are still accountable for their sin, but make no mistake, God is still sovereign no matter what may be taking place in the world. 
And there's nowhere that is more clear to us than in our salvation. So now, why then do they pray this way? Why did they begin this prayer with the sovereignty of God? Because if all of this is true, then what threat, what law can actually threaten the church? I mean, what could we possibly face? And and I think especially in a culture where we've experienced certainly a a level of freedom in in our history, but but, but the truth is, is that that that's really relatively new. What power is greater than God? Who can overthrow the decrees of God? There is no court, no judge, no ruler, no council, no assembly, no government, no power that is greater than God. And that's why this prayer begins with the sovereignty of God. And so church, as we pray... Our prayer must be to the God who is sovereign. And so here's the application. The application is this. Praise our sovereign God. We pray to a sovereign Lord who is in control of all things and over all things. What comfort is God's sovereignty to you today? Where do you turn in time of need and trouble? Do you turn to rest your, pill, your head on the pillow of God's sovereignty, as Spurgeon said? And so that's where this prayer begins. But now the second thing that I want you to see is with God's sovereignty in place, they are then ready to make the plea that is made. So with that prayer and praise lifted, with their eyes now turned to the great throne of God where he rules and reigns, now they make a plea. So let's consider consider secondly the plea that they made. Verse 29. Look at the text. And now, Lord. Do you see the transition? (laughs) This is good. And now. And now, Lord. And now. Now that we have your sovereignty in our perspective. Now, now Now that we're focused to realize, I'm not worried about what's going on around me. Now that I'm focused on the truth that, God, you are sovereign Now I'm going to offer my plea, my petition. And so here's the petition. You would expect them to pray for deliverance from threats. That would be the human response, wouldn't it? God protect us. God keep us safe. God please allow us not to be arrested or imprisoned. But no, look at their prayer. Their prayer is interesting. They first ask for God to consider their threats. Look at the verse, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. In other words, look at the threats that are going on. And he doesn't, he doesn't pray for fire to fall down. <laughs> he doesn't pray for, for the enemies to be destroyed. He acknowledges the reality of threats. And he simply asks God to consider them. And therefore, it's important not to romanticize again this situation. These threatenings and persecutions were real. And you need to understand that the things that we face as believers, if you're a Christian, it is real. There are real threats. There are real dangers. There's a real enemy, a real power of darkness. There's real suffering and affliction and hostility in the world. But we, and and we do not have the strength to stand against those things. That, that's, that's why the plea is so important. 
At no point should we take confidence in our flesh or our own strength. They make petitions. They make these, this plea because they're powerless on their own. And today we must ask God the same knowing that we do not have the ability in ourselves to face any of the challenges ahead of us as a church or as believers. And so what did they do? They asked God to empower his servants. They asked him to consider the threats, but then look, they asked God to empower his servants. Look at verse 29. Look upon their threats. See their threats. Don't destroy them. Look what he says. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They ask to be empowered for the task. They ask for divine enablement, not escape. And so they ask to be empowered for the task of continuing to preach the word of God, the gospel. They pray for courage to preach the gospel and remain faithful to the truth, no matter what happens and no matter the cost. The word must be taught and preached. And so that was central to their mission. And notice what they prayed for. What did they pray for? Boldness. And it is clear that the boldness that they pray for is not moral virtue. And Christians, we need to realize the distinction here. Boldness is not, they're not praying for some little thing that exists within them. They're praying for something that is not in them. They're praying for a boldness that can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a divine gift. And so that is why we should pray for boldness. And that's also why we pray for boldness, because if we are sometimes bold in one situation, and yet we're fearful in another. One day we can have courage, and the next day we can be intimidated. That's a reminder to you that we need to pray for boldness from the Spirit of God. Our prayer should be for God to enable us to preach and share the gospel with boldness. And boldness means with clarity, to be clear on what the gospel is. It means to preach and share the gospel with conviction that we live and die by these truths of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we have to pray as well for boldness that involves courage. Courage to speak the truth in the darkness that surrounds us. So they ask God to empower them. We must ask God. Our plea should be, God, we need your power for boldness. Look again. We're not looking to our own giftedness. We're not looking to our own personality. We're looking to the Holy Spirit to give us power to preach God's word, to teach God's word, to share God's gospel. And then in verse 30, the plea is this, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice that here they ask for God to stretch out his hand. In other words, they understand that unless the Spirit of God moves, unless God's Word activates the heart and transforms the soul, there's nothing that we have the power to do. I do not have the power to change people's lives. None of us do. We do not have the power to convert sinners to salvation. 
We don't have gimmicks and tricks and formulas and all sorts of things in our, in, in, in our resources that can accomplish what only God can do. And that's what this text reminds us of. They ask God to stretch out His hands. Now in Acts, signs and wonders, they simply authenticated the gospel message. As the word would be boldly preached, God would do these things so that people would embrace the truth of the gospel and be saved. In other words, when you see these signs and wonders, don't separate them from the preaching of the gospel. In Acts, the signs and the wonders, the great healings and the great miracles, they were secondary to the preaching of the gospel. The wonders that the Spirit did in the early church with all of those signs and wonders were to lift up the message of salvation. You know why? Because the greatest miracle is the conversion of sinners, the salvation of souls. And so what is, what is central here is the preaching of the Word. And that further demonstrates that only God can accomplish the work that He has given us. So what should be replicated from this text is our pursuit of boldness to teach and preach the Word. Those miracles, those signs, those wonders, they went away with the early church. But what has not gone away is the preaching of salvation to sinners. And that leads to the last thing in this plea is they say, through the name of Jesus Christ. They asked through the name of Jesus. They offered these petitions so that Christ would be glorified. The church's passion is to see others submit to the lordship and authority of Christ. They're not using his name as a magic formula. Instead, they were demonstrating the truth that Christ is risen from the dead and he possesses all authority. Only through Jesus can we experience God's power and God's redemption. And that's why, as you come to the end of verse 30, Here's what we should walk away with in this plea. Let us plea. Let us plead for the word to be proclaimed with boldness. Whether it be in our homes as we teach our children, whether it be in our Sunday school classes, or whether it be from the pulpit of this church, may we plead that the word be proclaimed and shared with boldness. Because we must recognize in application the opposition that we face, the weakness of our flesh, and our need for the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you rely on your own strength? What is your plea this morning to God? God, give me boldness. What are you facing when you leave here? What are the areas of your Christian life? Who are the people that you're interacting with that you need to have boldness that's not going to come from within, but it's going to come from the Holy Spirit to empower you to teach the truth and to share Christ? And that leads us to the last thing. Not only do we see first the, the prayer that they lifted to a sovereign Lord. Not only do we see the power, the, the, not only do we see the plea that they made, but lastly, we see the power that they received. Look at verse 31. The place was shaken by the Holy Spirit. And when they had prayed, look at, look, look at the text. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there are three things that happen here as they receive the power of God. First, 
the place was shaken by the presence of the Spirit. There was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit here. And you may say, well, what is the measure of that fulfillment? Go to Acts chapter 5 and look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted unclean spirits, and they were healed. So what then is the outpouring here? Look at the text. It says in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. That's the key. The key of the movement of God is the preaching of God's word and the salvation of sinners being added to the church. That was the visible manifestation. And so the place was shaken by the presence of the Spirit. We must be reminded of our need for the presence of the Holy Spirit, which He now is always with us because of the promise of Christ. He is with us to carry out our mission. But the other thing that you see is they were filled with the power of the Spirit. They were filled with the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 And if you go back to chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says that Peter was filled with the Spirit, and then he preached. The power of the Holy Spirit was on display and was filling them to preach the gospel. So what then does it mean for you and me to be filled with the Spirit? Whether you are preaching God's Word or teaching a class or sharing Christ with a coworker, all of us must be filled with the Spirit. It's one of those things where I, I can't demonstrate it. I can just tell you when it's happened. You follow me? You're filled with the Spirit and you know it has happened because you have clearly communicated the Word of God. You have made known the gospel of Christ and God has taken that Word and will then implant it in the heart of others. We need to be filled with the Spirit so that the gospel will go forth in power. And that leads you to the last thing. God actually, here you can see, answered their prayer. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't stop. You knew that God was working because the word was still being taught, and they were speaking it with boldness. So they had received the provision of the Spirit, which was boldness to preach. And so this morning, consider that application for us. Let us be filled with the Spirit. Let us be filled with the Spirit and be bold with the Word and the Gospel. That's what we need to pray for. That's what identified this early church. And when you look at all of the great movements all of the great revivals, all of the things that have happened in the history of the church, it has always been marked by a clear return to the proclamation of the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This is the needed prayer that you and I need today to our sovereign Lord. In closing, I was struck in my reminders. I was thinking about the early church and the opposition that they faced in this prayer. I was reminded of Martin Luther as we're in October and we're approaching Reformation Day. On the eve before Luther's appearance, before the Diet of Worms, he spent the whole night in agonizing prayer. Keep in mind that Luther literally stood alone against the medieval church. Luther stood on a, on, literally was the hinge between the medieval world and the modern world. And his boldness to stand on the word of God and preach that it is only through Christ alone that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ was, was, an, was an absolute huge risk to himself. He knew that the next day would, could very well be his last day. And here is just a snippet of his prayer the night before that eventually led to his writing of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Imagine Luther in that, in that cell, praying to God, fighting against the devil, knowing that he would stand and have to defend the teachings of God's word. Here's what he prayed. O God Almighty, O God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up. And how small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend on any strength of the world, all is over. He would go on to say, O oh God, O oh God, O oh thou my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. And Luther would then wake up the next day and take his stand. We need that kind of prayer. Admit our weakness. Admit our need for the Spirit of God. Admit our, the truth of God's sovereignty. So that's my question to you. Will we pray for God's power from our sovereign Lord? Will we seek God to work through His Word for the glory of Christ? And will we be filled with the Spirit to speak the truth? And share the gospel. That's what, needs, that's what we need today. We need this prayer to our sovereign Lord as we walk forward together for the glory of our Savior. Let's stand. As we stand this morning and we think about this text, if you're here today, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And this morning... If you're here today and you have never received Christ as Savior and you want to know more about this gospel, I'll be down here in the front. I'm happy to speak to you. I'll be happy to pray with you. And anyone here today, as we think about the task ahead of us and our need for the Holy Spirit, you're welcome to come and pray together, seek counsel. And as a church, let us turn our eyes to our sovereign Lord And let us respond in faith. Father, we thank you for your word as it has been imperfectly proclaimed. But we know that it is your word and it is perfect. And so we pray for boldness. We acknowledge your sovereignty. We acknowledge that that no one here, none of us are adequate to do what you have called us to do. We are totally dependent upon your Holy Spirit. And God, put us there, keep us there so that we will look to you 
for guidance and for strength. Do your work in our heart to help us to see our need and to cry out to you and plead for power. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.